0: Hello everyone and welcome to tonight's Sydney Ideas Health Forum. I'm Susan Templeman, I'm a communications consultant and I'm your moderator for the evening. For this evening, for our public forum on neuroplasticity, the science behind rewiring the brain, we have, as you can see, a panel of experts who are here, not so much to talk to you, but to take your questions and have a conversation with you about neuroplasticity. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. We are excited about tonight's panel. Uh, this is the second event in the 2016 Sydney Ideas Health Forums. There won't be any set presentations, but we have divided the evening into some topic areas so that we can shape your questions and deal with them uh, in, in some sort of logical format. So let me run you through the topic areas. We will start by... Uh, learning a little bit about neuroplasticity, what it is, and how our understanding of it has evolved. Then we'll look at what conditions can be treated or delayed using the concepts behind neuroplasticity, and talk about some of the therapies that are showing promise. We'll then look at some of the myths and misconceptions. Uh, The fourth topic will be around the role of neuroplasticity for healthy brains. And finally, the future of neuroplasticity. So if you come with a question, have a think about where it might fit in that sort of structure. We obviously have some time constraints, but keep in mind if you don't have a chance to ask your question publicly, our panellists will, uh, assuming they're not called away for medical uh, emergencies, as as one panel member may need to be, they will be able to stay around afterwards to take your questions. Uh, We'll also be taking comments or questions over Twitter, so please use the hashtag, hashtag SidHealth, which you will have seen on the screen. And, And I should point out that this will be recorded and turned into a podcast. Because it is a public discussion, while we're interested in hearing your personal thoughts and opinions, you'll appreciate that our panel aren't able to give you any specific medical advice. So if you could keep that in mind when you're asking a question. Now let me introduce our panel. Uh, I'm going to start with the person closest to me, Associate Professor Michael Valenzuela, leads the Regenerative Neuroscience Group at the university's Brain and Mind Centre. He has a background in psychology, clinical medicine and neuroscience research and has been recognised for his research with awards from the NHMRC and Eureka Prizes. Michael's research aims to understand the competing forces of neuroplasticity and degeneration in the human brain and how these can be modified to help prevent dementia. Uh, Professor, next to Michael is Professor Leanne Tor, a speech pathologist and internationally recognised researcher who's worked in the area of communication disorders following acquired brain injury for over 25 years during which time she's been awarded two NHMRC Senior Research Fellowships. Her current research explores the intensity, frequency and type of speech therapy required to reacquire or improve communication following traumatic brain injury. Next to Leanne is Dr Michael Lee, a clinical neurophysiologist, I knew one of these words would get me, with a background in chiropractic and physiotherapy. His research focuses on identifying markers of disease activity and progression for motor neuron disease, as well as the role of physical and exercise therapy in MND and other conditions like spinal cord injury and neuropathic pain. He has research expertise in cutting-edge neurophysiological techniques such as transcranial magnetic stimulation and the use of novel brain imaging modalities. And finally, on the end, Dr. Professor Simon Lewis is an NHMRC ARC Dementia Fellow who works as a consultant neurologist at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and is Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Sydney. He's the Clinical Director of the Ageing Brain Clinic and Director of the Parkinson's Disease Research Clinic at the Brain and Mind Centre. He's attracted over $5 million in funding to support his research interests, including disease prediction, diagnostic techniques, developing novel therapies and improving quality of life. So please join me in welcoming our panellists. Now that was a lot about them, but we're also interested in you and what's brought you here tonight, particularly on a, a cold winter, first day of winter, wet evening. So I'm just going to ask you to give me a show of hands just to try and get a sense of who's in the audience and why. Now, if you're here because you're a student or health or medical professional interested in learning more about the latest science in this field, just pop your hand up for me. There you go. That's quite a few of you. Um, Are you here because a loved one suffers from a condition that you you think may benefit from neuroplasticity? Thank you. And are, the, are people here, I'm guessing, but I'd love you to indicate that our guess is accurate, that you're here to learn more about how to, how to maintain a healthy brain as we age. <laughs> and if you're here because you're my husband, you can probably put your hand up too. LAUGHTER So so we're hoping that you will learn things tonight and uh, we're also encouraging a discussion amongst our panel. They won't necessarily all agree on everything and we're very keen to have the the differing views expressed. As as you're here, uh, you're probably aware that the theories and principles behind neuroplasticity are relatively new. For a long time, scientists and medical professionals thought the adult brain was unchangeable. And as such, any damage done to the brain by disease or injury was unrecoverable. But in the late 20th century, new evidence emerged to challenge this belief and show that the mature brain can still create new brain cells and new connections well into later life and reorganise or rewire itself in response to experience, disease or injury. In some cases, even regaining some functional recovery as a result. Given the diverse range of backgrounds from our panel, uh, we thought we would start just to get some context uh, from each of them about what neuroplasticity is in the context in which they're working. And Michael uh, Valenzuela, who will from here on be known as Michael V, as opposed to Michael Lee, would you like to kick off the conversation?
1: Sure. Uh, I guess if we speak at a biological level, my take on neuroplasticity would be that It's all of those changes that occur to the brain in response to experience. And experience could be very generally defined as to, from a neuron's point of view, its experience of other neurons, other cells in the brain, the environment, um, what you're doing on a day-to-day level, what you're doing over longer periods of time. So it's really about biology changing in, in response to the external world. At a more conceptual level, Neuroplasticity is what keeps you alive, because if the brain was the opposite, if it was static, then it would not be doing its function, which is to process information and create consciousness. So a static brain is a dead brain, the opposite is neuroplasticity, and so it's a pretty broad canvas for us to talk about.
0: Thank you. and Leanne, in in the work you're doing, how do you do you think about it differently or with with some addition? Um, Yeah,
2: two words came to mind for me when I was thinking about neuroplasticity. Um, One was uh, that it gives hope for the future, um, that we can change our brains, that we can engage in some kind of experience that will change... um, some aspect of our behaviour and as a speech pathologist working with people with traumatic brain injury and stroke, that's extremely exciting to think that we can do that. Um, So hope was one word and the other word that came to my mind was explanation. It gave me an explanation for why when I saw people clinically and they were 10 years after their, their stroke or their traumatic brain injury, And all evidence had told me that they shouldn't recover, that there should not be any more improvement, and they were improving. And so, finally, when I heard about neuroplasticity, and I had worked for many, many years before, you know, I I learned that we we never grow any more brain cells, that you're stuck with... In fact, you lose them because if you drink too much. And um, so, for, for me, it was actually, these people's brains are changing, things are happening to them. Um, and that, that provided an explanation for me about how what I was doing was making a difference, that there really was something going on in these people's brains.
0: Thank you. And um, Michael Lee, you're all about movement. So how do you define it?
3: Um, whatever they say, I think is correct. <laughs> uh, no, I think um, I, as a physio coming from a physiotherapy background, uh, we frequently utilize exercises, uh, physical therapies such as uh, electrical stimulation uh, and so forth, try to promote uh, function and try to promote recovery in people who uh, may have an uh, injury or, or diseases that affect their movement. Uh, and certainly I think the, the term neuroplasticity for me, uh, like Leanne said before, offers uh, the patient and also us an explanation of why certain things may work uh, but I think the challenges still lies ahead as to the nature of the plastic changes uh, why certain therapy work for some people but not others uh, and and how can we find out what the best treatment is that promote uh, most plasticity um, and also I think um, uh, I also like to add that plasticity is not always a good thing uh, because we know that um, uh, diseases uh, injury uh, immobilization, disuse can also cause plasticity, but in the bad ways, you we know, call malplasticity. Uh, and, and so we need to be quite careful how we use the, the term neuroplasticity. Um, and yeah, I think in terms of what we do as physiotherapists, we, we tend to uh, adhere to the principles of neuroplasticity, try to promote uh, change, try to encourage um, uh, enough uh, stimulus to drive a functional change. So. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And Simon, so neuroplasticity, what is it to you?
4: Look, I, I'd, I'd pick up on Leanne's point, and I'd probably just have a little bit of a variation on it, which is for me, it's hope. Uh, I think that it's uh, very empowering to be able to say to people, look, uh, don't lose hope. But we do have some strategies that we think are going to help. Uh, and that's not only a bad thing, oh, sorry, not a good thing for the patients, but also for the professionals, because in actual fact, we need to be able to come back into work the next day and go, okay, we're going to do something good here today. The slight variation I put is not explanation, but expectation. And my real concern, especially when I'm seeing patients in the clinic, is what they expect neuroplasticity can do for them. And in medicine, and I think probably in a lot of walks of life, we're often left having to juggle you know, what's a reasonable expectation? Um, and the idea that, you know, well, I'm sure the concepts come out, that we have this ability, there's a brain that will repair itself. And God, if I hear about Norman Dodges, but one more time in clinic, I may just freak out. But the, the the concept is a good one. And it's a bit like saying, you know, exercise is good for you, smoking is bad for you, you need to do these things. But the bottom line is that, of course, you know, there are only so many things that, you know, we'd be able to achieve. I've at this time, I, I hope in our lifetimes we will see massive advances, but I think for me, hope and expectation
0: mm-hmm. would be the key. So there's a bit of an introduction. And, and again, I want you to think about your, the questions you might want to ask and, and who they might be directed to. Our first topic is uh, really looking at how our understanding of neuroplasticity has evolved. And, and Michael V, I'm going to ask you to, to talk us through this.
1: Okay, so I thought I would start a little bit historically and, and go back in time to the start of 1900s, so Federation in Australia. At that time, there was a Spaniard working on the. Yes, thanks. A Spaniard by the name of Santiago Ramon y Cajal, and you saw some of his exquisite uh, paintings and drawings of the brain, there you go, um, which he did from the microscope and just by hand. And so he he really defined the architecture of the brain at the time. And he came up with two fundamental um, conclusions which are really part and parcel with neuroplasticity as we know it today. So first of all, in one of his famous lectures, he identified that in in the structure of the neurons, which you can see there, You can see that they they often have a cell body, which is the the dark blobs in the middle of this sprawling network. And and he defined these, at the ends of these networks, as synapses, which are connections between brain cells or neurons. And so his first postulate was that maybe memories are represented by strengthening or weakening of the synaptic connections... And so that, for him, was a very speculative idea, but an incredibly powerful idea. And so since then, that idea has then um, been elaborated by others, for example, Donald Hebb in the mid-1940s, who came up with Hebbian Learning Principles, which was essentially a statement of the similar concept but in a more formal method, which, which said that... Uh, if there's a a synapse that is firing onto another synapse, if that fires repetitively, then in the future, that second cell will be activated more efficiently by the first cell. In other words, you may have heard this term, cells or neurons that fire together, wire together. And so that concept became biologically um, conceptualised as a process called long-term potentiation, or LTP, which is really a biological, biological explanation of that same phenomena. So since then, since the 1940s, we've, we've developed very elaborate models and understanding of how synapses create um, stronger connections with other synapses and diminish connections with other synapses, and in fact is probably the substrate for learning and memory. And so Ramon and Cajal started that whole train of process which kind of explains and gives us our best understanding of neuroplasticity to date. On the other hand, he also had a very famous conclusion, and I'll read it to you, which was, once development was ended, so in other words, after we leave the womb, the fonts of growth and regeneration of axons and dendrites, the subparts of a neuron, dried up irrevocably. In the adult centres, the nerve paths are something fixed and immutable. Everything may die, nothing may be regenerated. So that was kind of a pessimistic look on neuroplasticity. Uh, In that case, focusing on the actual quanta of brain cells, the number of neurons. For him and for, I guess, neuroscientists for the next 80 years, that became the dogma, the no-neuron dogma because of the force of the intellect of this Spaniard. And so in the 80s and the 90s, that dogma was challenged by this phenomena called neurogenesis, which we now know happens across just about every species that has been investigated, including humans. So the latest research a couple of years ago, using some very clever technology, showed that we are probably producing about 400 to 500 new brain cells every day, in a very specific part of the brain, which is the hippocampus or the memory centre. So I think that kind of encapsulates a century-long progression of our understanding. Synaptic plasticity, this creation of new connections between neurons, is certainly, in my mind, probably the most important explanation for neuroplasticity. But there's also a new phenomenon which has revolutionised and completely overturn this new, new neuron dogma, which is called neurogenesis, the creation of new neurons. So I think we're a very exciting time in our understanding because we're elaborating our knowledge about synaptic plasticity, but we're creating new knowledge about this very exciting process called neurogenesis.
0: Now, I'll invite any of the panel who'd like to um, have a... pick up on any of those things, but I also want to check if anyone has a question around this stage of the conversation before we move into the topics around conditions that can be treated using it. Any... I'm just doing a check, just in case. Yes, now, I do have a question in the middle here. Now, it would end, while we're getting the microphone, so that you'll get a microphone brought to you so you can ask a question, while we're waiting for that, can I get an, an indication? Does anyone on the panel want to add anything, throw anything in? No? We'll, yeah, we'll take the question then. Thank you. If, Mike... you. if you're happy just to say your name and if there's any connection you'd like to draw from where you work, okay, uh, that'd be great. My name is Helen Jones and I'm a member of the public just interested. Wonderful to have you. Um, Michael, you
5: mentioned that people... Um, have another four or 500 connections a day
2: on average?
1: Cells a day. Brain
2: cells. Is that just replacing what's dying or is it increasing? Mm. Does it change different
5: ages? Does it depend on what you're doing, like whether
2: you're sleeping or whether you're doing active
5: interesting things? Great
1: question. So based on uh, this study that I'm referring to, uh, the study was based on postmortem tissue, so we can only extrapolate from a whole group of people and try and understand what's changing. So certainly with age, that rate of new brain cell generation declines, but it doesn't decline to zero. On the other hand, also with age in some people, you start to see loss of neurons in this specific part of the brain called the hippocampus which is the memory centre. So if you're someone who's afflicted by a disease, for example, Alzheimer's disease, which specifically cherry-picks neurons in the hippocampus, that rate of replenishment can't keep up with the rate of degeneration. So overall, the net effect is a loss of numbers of brain cells in that area and then memory dysfunction, memory problems. So whether or not... Uh, different activities affect that rate of neuro- neurogenesis from animal studies, because we don't have good evidence in humans because so far we've been limited to post-mortem technology, but in, in animals we can analyse this in a more dynamic way. All the good things that we know about seem to be pro-neurogenesis and all the bad things are anti-neurogenesis. So the the most common negative influence on neurogenesis stress, chronic stress specifically, and so there is a theory of depression which is based on this production of new brain cells being um, subverted by high levels of chronic stress, which then leads to onset of symptoms. On the other hand, things like physical activity, social activity, mental activity are excellent stimulators of of neurogenesis, as far as we can tell from animals. In those animal studies, it seems like it is actually relevant to their ability to memorise things and their mood. And so it's quite a frontier area in humans to understand whether or not this neurogenesis that we know happens, is it functionally relevant? I don't think we have the answer to that question yet. It's certainly something my group's very interested in
4: just for the benefit of the, um, thank you for unmuting me, um, just for the benefit of the audience. Um, can you give us some concept of four or 500 brain cells? How many cells are there in a human brain? And how far do these cells wander? Because you said they're in the hippocampus, that's great, but if you have a stroke that's maybe on the other side of your brain, mm. or, you know, is that gonna be, do they, do they move, do they go, go help?
1: Yeah, so from a, from a quant point of view, on average, maybe we have about 100 billion cells in the brain. In this subpart of the hippocampus, which we're quite interested in, we may have about 25 million neurons. And to give you a kind of mental picture of what numbers we're talking about, if you have Alzheimer's disease in this subpart of the hippocampus, that drops about 5 million, so you've lost about 20 million cells in this one subpart of the hippocampus, so you can kind of get an idea that another 500 cells every day—it is it can can be cumulative. It is important, but it just doesn't keep up with the rate of loss of brain cells. Now, as to whether they wander around um, physiologically, so under the normal conditions, I think it's well well understood that within the hippocampus there's a there's kind of local migration, local travel in the, in the neighbourhood. There's another type of neurogenesis which starts around the ventricles and then ends up in the olfactory lobe, which is probably very important to cats and dogs and, and, and lower animals. Um, for humans, we, it may be important to olfaction, but it's not clear. But that's a very long, circuitous route that they take. It's very interesting as to what happens in stroke because we know in, in rodent models of stroke... You do see recruitment of neurogenesis from um, this ventricular area into the stroke area, so it's crossing half the brain. It doesn't seem to be functionally very important in those animal models and whether it's functionally important in humans is anyone's guess. So uh, migration certainly occurs, uh, but really the key is, what's the functional importance of it?
4: Because when they get there, they'd have to make a whole heap of connections, right? Mm.
1: Which yeah, I mean I mean, get, getting to the area of damage, that's, that's just step one, yep. and then there's so many other steps to, yep. to create clinical or therapeutic improvement.
0: Now that probably neatly takes us to our second topic. What conditions can be treated or delayed using the concepts behind neuroplasticity? Can I get an indication who has a question that would fit into this area? There's a few smattered around. Look, I think we might start. Why don't we start? There's a gentleman here uh, in a suit. I've got to try and be a bit descriptive so they can see from behind who they're heading for. And then there was another one over there. Was there one on this side? And then we might come to this gentleman down here. So I'll go one, two, three. Let's just kick it off with some questions. If you'd like to tell us your name and fire away.
6: Am I the person with the suit? <laughs>
0: You are, are the particular. very debonair, debonair gentleman in the suit. Well, yeah. I
6: don't know about that, but Arvin um, Kleinberg from dentistry.
0: Maybe just hold the I'm a, dent- I'm a, a bit. clinical
6: prosthodontist in, in the dental faculty, and uh, neurophysiologist is, was my my PhD field. Um, I wanted to ask Michael, and I was a bit shy. Um, hasn't hasn't um Provided a, an avenue for clinical assessment of the sorts of things you were talking about, post stroke, etc., etc. That's my question. But I have a bigger question, and, l- and it must follow a little story. As a dentist, you know that you're born with teeth, but so many of you have or will lose them. And some in the past, and maybe still in the future, will end up with no teeth. That sort of Catastrophic change incapacitates the, the human so that they can't chew properly, they can't talk properly, they have diminished um, social confidence, and they have all sorts of problems. Uh, we've been doing some work on, on um, restoring the bite for function and looking and using fMRI to, to assess um, hippocampal neuron activity. And my question is, do you think what I've just described, namely such a simple thing, not like the very problematic conditions that you treat, a simple thing like restoring a person's mouth bite for function could have the same implications for the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex and those areas and delay the onset of, of dementia?
0: Thank you. So, Michael, I suspect, Simon, there's probably a few of you who want to have a say here. Who'd like to kick it off?
1: Um, Very interesting question. I guess in terms of neuroimaging, the the main issue there is resolution. So the the pixel size on an MRI scan of the brain is, say, a millimetre by a millimetre. And if you really push the technology, maybe you can go down to half a millimetre. neurogenesis and, and synaptic plasticity, we're talking at the level of 10 micron. And so we, we can't see these things in vivo, unfortunately. All we can see is maybe the mass effect from a lot of neurogenesis, maybe you'll see a pixel get more grey than it was before. So that's, that's quite challenging. Uh, my team is currently working on a spectroscopic method to try and assess neurogenesis, so looking at, metabolism and, and neurochemistry as opposed to trying to see the structure. So that's kind of a, a different approach. But again, the resolution is a big big issue. The other question, uh, I don't know the answer. I think that's an empirical question that, that you, you may help address, whether helping someone's dentition could help prevent dementia. We certainly know that oral health is a massive problem in people with dementia and, and until recently poorly recognised. But certainly if you were to revolutionise someone's uh, personal health by by giving them new teeth, which maybe means they can get out of the house more and meet new people more, that's going to totally change their life and certainly have an impact on their brain. So I, I think that's very
4: plausible. Let's begin with any of the fMRI stuff. So let's have a little... So you mentioned about uh, functional MRI. So just for people in the audience who don't know this concept, standard MRI scanner, uh, effectively, if you can get someone to do a task whilst lying in an MRI scanner, because when you use oxygen in your brain, um, the the, the oxygen is carried there by, if you like, hemoglobin inside blood cells. Hemoglobin is iron. Interestingly, there's a difference between the magnetic properties of oxygenated hemoglobin and deoxygenated hemoglobin. So if you're still with me, effectively tissue that's active uh, gets a signal on functional MRI scan. So there is some pretty old work now, I guess, over a decade in stroke. Um, So many people in the audience, I think, will know that the right side of the body is sort of controlled by the left side of the brain and vice versa. So they took stroke victims, uh, if that's the right word, I'm not sure, but uh, who maybe, let's say for the sake of argument, had lost the power down their right side of the body um, and do an experiment where you say, OK, I want you to move your hand in the scanner and see if we see any activity on the functional MRI scan on that left side of the brain. And of course, there's very little because there's there's no movement and there's damage. But interestingly, the experiments that were done uh, showed that, in fact, if you took those uh, same stroke victims and strapped their good side, so their good side couldn't work for a few weeks, and then did the same experiment, you actually started not only to see a little bit of movement coming, which one sees in stroke recovery, of course, because of the good side, but you started seeing ipsilateral, so the wrong side of the brain starting to work during that experiment. So I think this is one of the powerful arguments for saying, well, actually, we can see evidence of neuroplasticity. And I don't know, personally, I don't think that represents neurogenesis with cells streaming to the rescue. I think it's more likely to be, if you like, uh, a functional reserve. And, and Michael, I'm, I'm, and <laughs> yeah, I'm with the experts here, so I don't know whether you want to chip in there and say whether that fits in with efficiency models or...
0: Yeah, Leanne, I was going to also bring you and Michael in. You yeah. work with people yeah. who have had strokes and traumatic brain injuries. Yeah. Can you pick up on on the ideas there that Simon... Yeah, was?
2: I mean, I, th- I think um, that that work you've been talking about, you know, and constrained-induced treatment, um, constrained-induced motor treatment, and that, that since then it's been picked up by speech pathologists and we have constrained-induced language treatment so that people... Uh, um, who have aphasia after a stroke and aphasia is where you lose um, some or all of your language ability so you lose the ability to put words and sentences together um, and or understand what's being said to you and you may have trouble with reading and writing and there's many um, problems that happen after aphasia and obviously it's devastating when this happens. Um, So constraint-induced language treatment was introduced um, to to um, what we normally do in speech pathology is we give people every possible way of getting their message across. So it might be putting a pen in their hand and seeing if they can write the first letter of the word they're trying to say, or it might be gesturing what it is, you know, I want a cup. Um, It might be um, that they're they're going to point to the thing that they're talking about or looking at a picture. And what constraint-induced treatment did was put people behind a barrier and say, you're not to use any of those things, you've just got to speak. And that's, that's all you can do. Um, and so similar results have been found. People with obvious queuing and help from the clinician to practise saying the words can actually start to say some words. And, and if done intensively um, over a short period of time, which is the other essential part of this, you have to do it 15 hours a week for two weeks. So you do 30 hours of this treatment. Um, we we know it it fits in with this thing of use it, you know, if you you, um, use it, you can improve it. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. So so these are principles of neuroplasticity. Um, In terms of what's actually happening at a neural level in the brain, I really don't know. It's not my my thing. I'm more more the clinician. But but I know that those principles are powerful and, and it's certainly... Part of a clinical trial that we're currently running across Australia, um, called the Compare Trial, which we're comparing that we're comparing those two treatments. They're both intensive treatments. Um, we're going to do constraint-induced language treatment. There's a lot of evidence to say it works um, from uh, Europe, particularly, um, and the United States. But we're going to compare it with that first that way that I much rather do treatment, which is let the person use all their modalities, use their hands, use their writing, use their drawing, use whatever they can to get their message across. So we're going to do that kind of treatment for 30 hours in two weeks as well and see and compare them, compare to see which one works um, the best.
0: Yeah. Ma- Michael Lee, in terms of, of getting people moving again, I'll let you sort of carry, carry through with the question Simon was putting.
3: Yeah, I'm just trying to remember what the question was. Oh, well, Uh, right at the
0: beginning it was... uh, Yeah.
3: uh, Let's uh, just assume
0: uh, the conversation's moved as we're progressing through this. So don't worry too much about where we started.
3: I I was kidding before. Um, (laughs) So um, I I guess... I guess um, uh, from the original question, it's about the concept of neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. Um, I think you know the, Simon mentioned about uh, the use of functional imaging techniques. I think because of those technologies, we're able to see how the brain works. We can able, we're able to assess outcome of treatment, uh, and that gives us an idea whether there's been changes occur in different regions of the brain. And I think that's a powerful tool to reassure us that there is plasticity, uh, and, and what we're doing therapy-wise for clinicians is actually useful. Uh, but in terms of what the imaging tells us about the mechanism, I think it depends on the modality that you use. And also, as uh, Michael we uh, talked about before, it's in terms of the resolution, uh, and I think you will agree with me that you need to pick the right modality for the right area of the brain you want to investigate. So, um, But certainly, you know, things like fMRI, that will give us enough information about Maybe this region of the brain is actually being involved or engaged, Uh, and we can sort of infer from that point, maybe this is useful, maybe, you know, increasing someone's bites, correct their bites is going to help them with, you know, all these different areas. So I think that that's actually quite exciting, but I think, like I said in the introduction, we are still at the point where we need to sort of define what the underlying mechanisms are and how can we best utilise them in the clinical setting. Um, so, in, in terms of my area of expertise, I work with people with motor neuron disease, and it's a disease that uh, can be very fast-progressing, and it's um, uh, unique in a way because it only affects the, the muscle or the motor system. Um, and, um, it, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult... Uh, in terms of just maybe leading on to the question about what therapy, what condition can be treated, uh, in terms of neuroplasticity in this field... Um, you know, because we actually don't have a treatment for motor neuron disease, There's, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's fatal, uh, and we don't have a treatment that has shown any benefits. Uh, there is one drug that can sort of delay the process for maybe three to six months. Uh, so I think at the moment we are trying to think about how the disease affects uh, the brain, uh, you know, what sort of changes is happening with uh, the d- disease progression, and we're trying to find out whether we can identify those changes quite early on and also whether we can find things that can help us predict which patients are going to progress faster, which patients are going to progress slower. Uh, and it's what we call biomarkers. And it's really important we can, uh, you know, uh, get some in on that because that will help us to uh, eventually look at therapies that may potentially be useful, look at uh, drug effectiveness in these conditions. Um, so... Uh, still, but the term plasticity, neuroplasticity, is still applicable because we are studying the changes to the brain or the nervous system uh, as a consequence to a disease process. Um, Can
4: I just add... T- I just wanted to, am I being turned off again? OK. <laughs> There's a theme emerging here. You're in uh, Gabriel's I just want to, to add a couple of points to the points I made earlier, which is we've also seen similar things with functional MRI in cognitive training. So people improving, if you like, cognition by giving memory training and seeing corresponding activation on functional MRI. The other thing I wanted to just go back to with the uh, stroke story I told you, we don't routinely strap the good arm of patients. So despite the fact that actually we're seeing some neuroplasticity there, it hasn't transcended into to our tra- managing expectation. It hasn't transcended into, oh, my goodness, this is the new best therapy, but, you know, we we do keep moving in these areas. Sorry, me. Yes,
0: thank you for clarifying that. Now, I pointed to the second question over here. I, yes, there's the microphone. This gentleman in the jumper. There's probably a few gentlemen in jumpers, aren't there? Marone. Uh, hi, my name's sash, the,
7: sash. Yeah, occupational the
0: ther- jumper. I wonder what's happening with the game. Nar- narrowed it down.
7: <laughs> um, sash, occupational therapist, aspiring neuroplastician. You... you You just, uh, to me, bad-noted over 500 research articles on the benefits of constraint-induced movement therapy for upper limb rehabilitation. To the best of my knowledge, it's recommended by every Western country, National Stroke Association. And again, in terms of constraint-induced therapies such as the speech and language, other therapies like lsvt BIG for Parkinson's disease, LSVT, loud also for Parkinson's disease. There's solid evidence like randomised controlled trials, high-level evidence to support these interventions. Why do you think that they're not being delivered in public health when there is such an amount of evidence behind them? I don't understand why. And this research has been around for... In CI, Edward taub has been doing this for 30-odd years. Like why isn't it being delivered in frontline health, particularly in stroke
4: so I, I think the. Thank you. Um, so I think the, the, the point is uh, to go back to the speech therapy question. I think and those you know physiotherapy those are uh, all therapies that we would advise as very key parts of managing diseases, whether it's Parkinson's disease, stroke disease, LSVT. You know, recommended. Quite why it's not delivered in the front line, I, I suspect it's cost. Um, that's the obvious answer uh, unfortunately you know there's an attached cost to this um, and you know i think you know we we would encourage our patients to find ways around this and this relates to the way that our, our medical system works Constraint therapy, uh, I have to be honest and say that I I think the reason it hasn't been introduced widely um, is because we don't manage stroke very well acutely, regardless. Um, I think we have very stretched resources for stroke. You know, if you look at a general ward, you know, I'm on call tonight, so if the pager goes off, apologies. But, you know, we might struggle to have a physiotherapist on the ward every day, seeing every patient. And this is a political thing. It's great to be video recorded, and uh, here I am. (laughs) I would just state these views are my own and not those of the University of Sydney (laughs) or the Prince Alfred Hospital. Um, But the bottom line is that, you know, the fact of the matter, if you go along and, you know, look at these questions, the fact of the matter is you can talk to politicians, and I guess all of us have had the opportunity to speak to politicians. I do go to Canberra and have these conversations. And it's bizarre because they all say, that makes perfect sense, Professor. And I say, well, that's great. The problem is that when you say to them, look, your saving over the next however many years will be massive. And you say, OK, well, that sounds fantastic, Professor. And then they say, what's the cost? Now, the problem is the cost comes on the bottom line that year, the next year, the next year, the next year. And you don't see the saving because, in actual fact, you're concerned that your government has now been changed. So I suspect the answer lies somewhere within. I don't know if anyone else wants to... Leah?
2: I absolutely agree with you. We um, did a survey as part of a... I had a um, big two-and-a-half... It was $2.5 million. It was a nice grant. And part of that grant, the very first thing we did was survey speech pathologists all over Australia and internationally about their clinical practice and why they made the decisions, what sort of treatment were they doing, what would they like to be doing. Um, And overwhelmingly, um, treatments like constraint induced language treatment, LSVT, which for those of you who don't know LSVT, it's it's a it's a treatment that's been developed actually for people with Parkinson's disease where you, you're meant to think loud. People with Parkinson's disease ha, can have very soft voices. So it's, it's about really thinking loud and yelling, really, and doing a lot of it. Um, but it, it's, it's about how much of the, like, as I said, for constraint-induced language treatment, you're talking 15 hours of therapy a week. No health service in Australia can provide 15 hours of therapy to one person in a week. So um, these are the issues that we're grappling with and we're trying to find other solutions so that people can do their own practice and so that we can use e-health alternatives. And uh, I think we're going to get to that a bit later um, this evening, but... We've got to find other ways to deliver intensive treatments. We we know um, there there was a systematic review done some years ago that the minimum amount of treatment a stroke patient should receive for aphasia treatment is eight hours a week. That's the minimum to get any effect. So if you're only getting two hours of speech therapy a week, which in Australia is a lot, or one hour a week... It, it may not work because you're just not getting the, the level of intensity that you would need. So we've got to do something about this, and Simon's right. I mean, the, we're, we're trying to get this across at a political level because it is about funding, but it's also about just service delivery models and, and how can we modify what we're doing.
0: I might... We might get the microphone. No one, Yeah, no-one will be able to hear least of all the panellists.
7: If they presented pharmacological evidence that had the same efficacy as some of the things you've mm. been describing, it would be mm. straight on the PBS. It's so short-sighted. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll take that as a comment. Mm. That, that, sure was my, that. <laughs> that was my that Tony, Tony Jones Tony moment. Jones. Uh, we've got a question over here.
8: Hi,
9: I'm Kevin. I'm a high school student. In psychology class, we talk about neuroplasticity and we found that all the way back to 1972, Rosenzweig and Bennett, they found that rats in enriched rich environment when they play with toys and maize training they develop uh, thicker and heavier tissues in their cortex and frontal lobe which is responsible for thinking and decision making and then we touch on neglected children so there's a guy named perry used pest scans to uh, discover that uh, neglected children actually their brain actually functions uh, a little bit different to normal children so I'm just curious about whether this idea of neuroplasticity and neuro uh, neurogenesis can help us provide uh, even th- well at this point even theoretically treatment for neglected children. Yeah.
0: Michael V, maybe start with you on this one.
1: Yeah, thanks Kevin. Uh, <coughs> I'm glad you brought up those classic papers. Um, because those papers were the inspiration for me to get in in the field because they were so powerful. And and to give a bit more context, those studies were of a paradigm that that they do with rats and mice called environmental enrichment. So you basically look at the impact on the brain from living in housing in a, a normal, boring rodent cage versus one where it's called enriched, where where you have toys, you have mazes, you have tunnels for them to run around, running wheels, and lots more litter mates for social interaction. And it's an incredibly powerful um, intervention for those animals. You could argue that they're going from an impoverished to a more normal-like environment, as opposed to an enriched environment. That's more of a conceptual debate. More recently, they've pushed that, that concept even further. So if you do a little mental experiment, in those studies, the rats were generally living a whole life in an enriched environment. Uh, maybe you could think to yourself, what would be the minimum amount of enrichment before you could see a change in the brain? And it's in fact, as far as I know, just a couple of hours. So a couple of hours of an enriched environment leads to dozens and dozens of changes at the molecular level in the brain cells of those rats in those couple of hours of extra enrichment. So neuroplasticity, it's a cascade. It starts at the level of a very short time frame of hours where you start seeing molecular changes. Then if that environmental change is still there <coughs> weeks later, then you may start seeing the cellular part of neuroplasticity synaptic so plasticity, maybe neuro, neurogenesis. Then if that process continues, that new environment um, is still there and you're benefiting from it, you'll, you may actually start to see big structural changes to the brain. So, for example, in those studies, the brains actually got bigger, heavier, in those rats that lived in the enriched environment. And indeed, in our studies, we've seen that six months of... Um, doing additional exercise in older people, you start to see a thickening of some parts of the brain that are very important to cognitive function. So it's kind of an analogy of those classic studies. Um, so I think, I think there's a great connection there between those rodent studies and the new idea behind neuroplasticity, which is very popular, which is you've got to keep stretching your mind, you have to keep learning new things throughout life, particularly after retirement, to maintain optimal brain health, optimal cognitive um, abilities. Uh, As to whether we can use this treatment to specifically help neglected children, it's completely not my area of expertise. I know of one great study um, done in Argentina where... They specifically targeted schools, primary schools, that were in low socioeconomic areas and, and introduced um, a brain training program into the classroom. And what it found was that kids that were uh, already attending classes at the normal level, so had proper attendance, they didn't change academic performance at the end of the term. But those kids... Who were uh, missing a lot of school and had poor academic marks at the beginning of the year went back almost to the average level for that school. So a little bit of of brain training could help kids that were, were really underperforming for their for their area. So I think we can employ neuroplastic ideas in schools absolutely. And I mean teaching and learning is the fundamental basis, uh, is based on neuroplasticity. Um, but we can, I think, turbocharge that in, spe- in some specific circumstances um, to get better outcomes for kids.
2: Can I also make a comment there? Um, the environmental enrichment idea is, is now being used in stroke rehabilitation. So, um, you know, in the, in the olden days, you had your stroke, you got, you know, put out of your bed in the morning and then you sat next to your bed till you went and had your... Physiotherapy session, and you might have a speech session, you might have an OT session, and then you go back to your room. So, um, and we've done studies where we've looked at just the percentage of time, particularly if you have aphasia. So, if you have a communication problem and you're hard to talk to, um, on average, those people would get 12 minutes of interaction every day. Um, So, which isn't, you know, when that's the essence of what your problem is, the very thing you need is for people to be talking to you. So um, with that kind of information, stroke units are being set up so that to foster social interaction, like Michael was talking about, and to foster activity and to make sure people are engaged in doing things. And it's because of those rat experiments that you were talking about that we're, we, we can see we really do need to get these people up, dressed, out, talking to people, doing activities, um, really... And having interaction. I mean, as a speech pathologist, I can't overemphasise the importance of interaction and just what that does for somebody in terms of their mood and their, you know, feeling like they're going to be able to get through this. So they're they're very important principles that are being used.
0: Now, I might see there's a question right up the back there the lady almost to the wall. I spotted first. Um, What questions are... And then the the second one can be this gentleman down the front in the third row from the back, black T-shirt. Let's start with those. And then, uh, yes, then then we'll come to the the other man right in that row. We'll knock that row off all in one go. Over to you. I'm Penelope. I'm just interested. Um, A lot of the uh, discussion has been about neurogenesis as a response to... What I, would, what I am perceiving as um, external stimulus. I'm wondering if there's any intersection with the new areas um, uh, derived from mapping the microbiome, whether there is any neuroplasticity um, as a response to different internal um, populations of microbes. Who, who feels they might have something to to put into that one? We do know that neuroplasticity is su- there is such a broad field and we know we've got experts who, who have a broad range, but we do also know there'll be some things outside anyone's area of expertise.
1: I would just emphasise it. Uh, neurogenesis is just one form of neuroplasticity. So there's a very broad range, as I mentioned, starting at molecular changes, cellular changes and then network changes, which Simon was talking about, that new parts of the brain taking over old functions or old parts of the brain taking over new functions. So whether there is a microbitome uh, microbe, effect on your... ..I honestly don't know. If anyone else knows, I'd love to know.
0: There we go. There, there are lots of things we, we will not know tonight, unfortunately. Now, over to you.
1: Uh,
10: hello, uh, my name's Sam. Um, my question revolves around an experience in uh, December of last year in Berlin where I came across a really interesting program uh, where Alzheimer's patients, mainly older people, were being brought to a space where volunteers could come in I took part in that program and they could dance with the Alzheimer's patients. So the people were played music from when they were younger Uh, and we came in and we danced with them uh, in the room and what it did was it brought back a lot of memories Uh, they could remember the lyrics they would leave the sessions feeling uplifted and much much better and their brains were firing it seemed and it was really enriching for me and I read some things that revolve around the role of music and how it's uh, received by the brain and how that might uh, bring to light different parts of the brain that might not usually be triggered by speech, uh, general general undertakings in, in your day. How is music and dance and creativeness, how is that uh, programmed differently in our minds is what I'd like to know.
0: I'm tempted to start with Michael Lee here. Would you like to start this with-
3: Discussion off. Um, <clears throat> I, I used to play the violin, um, <laughs> but other than that, I don't know much about about music. Uh, but I do have a very good friend um, who is a music therapist in in Melbourne at the hospital there, and um, I think part of the job is actually you know working with people uh, in those conditions um, and and try to use music to inspire them to you know try to motivate them try to bring back some memories. Uh, and I think I think music is a very powerful thing. Um, I, I don't, you know, I can't tell you how, how it works, uh, but I certainly think I wouldn't discount it.
0: And Michael, um, and Michael, on the movement side, the physicality of it?
3: Yeah, um, so in, in terms of um, uh, the role of exercise and, and, and training, I think I can probably comment a bit more about that. And we, we know that from different studies, including ones I've done myself, that, uh, when, you, when you exercise, when you lift weights, there is evidence that you, uh, you, you, your brain gets smarter. You know, not, not, not um, smarter as in calculus, but in smarter the way it controls the muscles being trained. Uh, so we know that there's evidence from, from weight training that you can increase the plasticity of the brain in controlling the muscle you're training. Uh, and also we know that when you train or perform training with one arm, you actually get improvement in the other arm that doesn't train. So we know that there must be some sort of neuroplasticity that's uh, associated with exercises that can induce such a such a change. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, I, I can't really say any more about music or music therapy in this area. And, and maybe Simon, uh, working with dementia people, have a bit more. Yeah. Um,
4: Things to say? Yeah, sure. So um, it's it's a very hot topic at the moment, tapping into these things like music and, and Alzheimer's Australia at the moment are running a program looking at art. They're running that through, um, I think, the New South Wales Gallery um, and obviously dance. So quite why the brain is wired a bit differently for those things. Perhaps, um, you know, many of us are used to hearing, well, you know, he can't lay down new memories, but he can remember you know, who his best man was, that sort of thing. So whether you're able to tap into those very established memories because they haven't been so disrupted, they're more hardwired, I think that's probably what we're seeing. Um, in addition if we look a little bit on the motor side with dance obviously one of the hot topics with Parkinson's disease is whether dance might improve movement or balance and how it does that um, and probably the answer is that with Parkinson's disease mainly problems affect automatic movements so walking things you don't have to think about writing those sorts of things whereas if you're doing dancing you're actually making these bigger movements and we heard about Lee Silverman voice training loud movements they also now have LSVT big which is about making big. Big movements, And of course, what you're doing there is relying more on the cortex as opposed to the subcortex. So in terms of the the brain wiring. The the basal ganglia in the subcortex, of course, rely on the dopamine. Bit of a problem in Parkinson's because it goes missing. And that's why we get that disruption. The big problem on the other side is you kind of say, well, why can't you just dance all the time or sing all the time? It'd be brilliant. But of course, in actual fact, then you're relying on the cortex. The cortex uses so much sugar to do its job. I mean, basically, I can't know what the percentage of the, you know, your total body sugar goes on the brain, but effectively, if we were going to do that all day, we'd be exhausted. So we actually have to rely on these shortcut mechanisms, but being able to, if you like, tap into these cortical things is great. My big concern again, the theme of the night, is expectation. We see these very short studies, we see people having a benefit, and we all feel better. That's great, but whether there's a lasting benefit I think remains to be proven, and I haven't seen any convincing, overwhelming evidence.
1: Can I ask you a question? Because I, I often hear kind of folkloric stories that oh, a person uh, who, who couldn't speak for, for whatever reason could then sing yeah. that, that yeah. piece of information, yeah, that, that, that communication. True, yeah. So is that something we can reliably that is, count that on? it's
2: real. Um, so there and there is a treatment that's been developed for people with aphasia called melodic intonation therapy and I have done it with um, patients it's actually quite old it's been around since the early simulate. 80s no I'm not going to simulate it no um, <laughs> <laughs> no I've had plenty of patients laugh at me um, trying to do it um, but it's its and th- So it does sometimes unlock that ability to, to have short phrases or whatever if you've got no speech or, or and you've got single words. But it, um, as Simon said, it's so effortful and, it, and it's sort of not normal. We don't go around singing when we're talking. So um, the, the idea behind it is you're meant to try and elicit the, the speech in a <laughs> sing-song kind of manner and then shape it towards Reducing the amount of melody in it so that you can speak. And for some people, that has worked, and it's certainly a treatment that's still around, and people will try. So, um, you know, clearly the neural pathways um, relating to music are somewhat different to speech. Um, and I and I think there's also a lot of um, you were talking about the, the the memories, and I think music is represented. In our memory centres in our brain, and so that, that that's why it's triggering some of those old longer-term memories that are, that are still there. Um, so yeah, that, that that is real. You can do it.
0: Now I have one last question in this section. From pop the microphone to your mouth.
11: A change of direction. Um, we're dealing sometimes now at the molecular molecular level.
0: Can you talk into the mic just a little bit more, please? Point it towards your mouth. Oh, um, mm. oh yeah.
11: sorry. Uh, if we're we're getting on to some some stages to the molecular level of this treat treatment or, or or how the brain functions, now what do we make of a lot of articles on the internet suggesting if you just take this great list of vitamins, then then you know, after after you take all these expensive things, after about three months, your IQ will have jumped about 40%. Now, I mean, as someone in his 70s who's had a few problems from time to time, um, you know, one is interested in preserving what you've got. But, but uh, a lot of it seems like, a little bit like something I once read about people who have MS and if they happen to have an omega fatty acid deficiency, rash or something like this, then when you treat the, uh, when you treat them with more omega fatty acids, the MS got better in quite a few people, you know, this is from respectable things, but it gets into this area of uh, not quite complementary medicine, integrative medicine, but I just wonder, are most of these articles nonsense or not, you know, most of inviting you to buy a whole lot of vitamins, et cetera, yeah, panel vote, best... secret
4: ballots. <laughs> nonsense, not nonsense. <laughs> Nonsense. vote nonsense, nonsense. Snake oil. (laughs) Done. Um, Balanced diet, very important. The uh, fatty acids in MS theory, of course, has pretty much dropped away and we're now using immunosuppressive therapies for multiple sclerosis patients. uh, Far more effective than these measures. Hasn't gone away completely in the uh, dementia space. People are thinking about using fatty acid trials to encourage this. I have to say, my suspicion is it probably won't be very beneficial, but I'm glad to see the research going on.
0: Now, that really has moved us into some of these questions about uncovering myths and misconceptions. Oh, I forgot. I am sorry. I apologize. Look, I We have I a dementia click. clinic
4: just in case.
0: I can click. It was just a test, just to make you sure know, you're my, paying my
4: attention. Name's,
6: my name's Tim. Uh, I suffer from, uh, not suffer, but I have cerebellar ataxia, which I'm told uh, that neuroplasticity doesn't help in that condition, but also I'm uh, having speech therapy, which is working fairly well, and also other therapies as well. I'm just wondering uh, if there's any uh, new developments with attacks here with, uh, for neuroplasticity and what therapies may be showing promise for that, for that condition?
4: Uh, I'll take it. So at the moment, we don't have any therapies that we can see that are disease modifying in the progressive ataxias, the cerebellar ataxias particularly. Often, of course, we don't even know the cause. In most cases of primary um, cerebellar ataxia, we don't know the cause which makes it very difficult therefore to treat. And I think you're best served at the moment by actually um, the things that you're doing, the simple things, the physiotherapy, the speech therapy, and uh, I would be very wary of anything that you read. A quick sideline. In 2000, I started working in this space of Parkinson's and dementia, and everyone said, oh, the cure will be here in about five years. It was 2005 when people said, maybe in the next five years. 2010, possibly in the next five years. 2015 came by and i'm guessing we must be in jupiter years or maybe uh, mars years or some other kind of mo- so we don't have a right to expect a cure for any of the diseases that we face in you know, the, the world that we live in. We, we cure very few diseases. We, we live with them and we improve them. So, one of the messages that I would put out there as a positive message is if there are things that you, know, you think are reasonable and you know, experts like Liana are saying, look, this would be good for you, then I think that's very helpful. If something looks too good to be true and it's on the internet and you've read about it in the papers first before the doctors told you, it's probably not um, right yet.
0: Thank you. Now I'm going to move into myths and misconceptions, but, uh, and your question might fit into this category. There was wild waving over there. <laughs> that got my eye. So let's start with the question over here and see, in the, in the <coughs> colourful shirt. No
11: pressure, but it's
0: you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about wild waving, but okay.
5: So my name's Nisora. I'm a physiotherapist. Um, so going back to kind of a more clinical question. Uh, but... I think, as a physio, one of the more disheartening moments with stroke patients is when they're put on a maintenance status. Um, and I think, I un- understand that patients do plateau, and there's, you know it depends on how catastrophic the stroke is. But my question is, as a clinician, how can we confidently say that this patient no longer has capacity for any more recovery? In considering the concept of neuroplasticity, how do we say? Michael, you need to
8: get first go?
3: Um, <clears throat> physio, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, guess, I guess as a physio, I, put, I would probably... It, it's a difficult one. I think, I, think um, I always feel and would like to think there's always capacity to get better. Uh, but I think at the same time, we've got to be very careful not to make uh, you know, promises that, that we can't keep. And, and also, um, I, I work probably more with people with spinal cord injury uh, so as you know, it, it can be a very devastating condition and it's a lifelong problem uh, and most of them simply won't get better. Um, so I think I think for me, the the therapist side always think that there's a chance and as a therapist, we need to provide them with everything that we, we know that has shown to be useful and give you know, a hundred percent, but at the same time, I'll be very careful not to give them too much hope. Uh, and and
4: yeah, that's sort of my view. Yeah. I think the other thing I find clinically is that um, patients often get to a point where actually it's probably getting a bit too much, or they lose the energy that they need. That, that, I don't know if you see that in speech therapy as well, but that's one of the other factors that I take into account. And, you know, I, and I say, look, we don't, no need to do this forever, and you've got some exercise, you can practice this at home, and if you start showing and you get that appetite back, then I, we can always go back to it. That's not, a, not an issue.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I think um, in my clinical work, which was mostly with traumatic brain injury but also stroke, um, the the essence of, of those situations was not... I, I think the worst possible thing for people is the notion... You, you talked about maintenance, but it's like this is the end of the road. There's no... You know, um, and, and I would never say that. I'd always, we, we used to always review people on an annual basis. So we'd say, look you know, go away, you've got some things, as Simon said, to, to practise and go on with. If something happens that you suddenly notice there's a change, come straight back and we will do six weeks of therapy with you. And, and because that sometimes happened and I couldn't really explain what was going on in their brains, but sometimes people would come back and they'd suddenly got a bit more voicing from a speech pathology point of view or they um, would were, were saying two words instead of one. And so when there was some kind of spontaneous change, then that's when we jump in and and actually do some treatment. Um, So it's really about, um, and and I know for people with aphasia, one of the the more devastating things is feeling like they've been abandoned and they've been discharged and this is it. And so it's very important that we create systems so that 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 doesn't happen, whether it means that they go to community aphasia groups or or there's some other activity that they can go to that they can still feel like they're um, working on their um, issues if they want to. Because, as Simon said, sometimes people... I, I remember a guy begging me to stop because, you know, I, I said, look, we can go, we can get your prepositions, what we can get these begs? things... He begged. So oh, yeah, he was good, but he, he didn't have absolutely proper sentences. And he said, I've, I've this is enough, I've done enough, I'm happy. And so, you know, I was like, oh, OK... So, it's about listening to the patient as well and what they want. Yeah. I think it's
1: up a very important clinical point, which is that more is not necessarily better when it comes to a lot of these neuroplasticity based therapies. <clears throat> this was made very clear to me by a study run by one of my postdocs who's in the audience there, um, Dr. Amit Lampet, who he reviewed all the brain training studies in older people. Um, This was putting together research from about 50 clinical trials, 50,000 patients, a very definitive study. And what it showed was that brain training was effective if you did it once a week, twice a week, three times a week, and then zero, anything further, more, more often, four, five, six times a week. So, like... We recommend for intense physical exercise, there should be rest days in between intense physical exercise to let the body recover and reset all of those adaptive mechanisms. I think, I think it's emerging more and more now that the, you know, in some cases the brain is similar, that you can't overload um, on some of these treatments because it actually starts to subvert the efficacy.
0: Now, I'm going to... I, I'll ca- let. I've got to let people who haven't had a chance, you will be able to talk to people afterwards, remember? There's a gentleman here, and I just found someone over here who had their hand up here. Yes, there we go. So let's take um, with the white jacket, stripy jacket. Yeah. So.
8: Hello. Hi, my name's Michael. I'm a health practitioner, a chiropractor, and exercise science background.
0: You might have to speak <clears throat> up just oh, a little can bit. Can you hear more. me better? That's yep. better.
8: Uh, my question is actually on the on the movement side as well it 's not really necessarily about the myth, sorry I wanted to go back to the other one. Just cu- trying to understand say the baseline of dysfunction in the first place of uh, is there some sort of epidemiological research on when we know um, from a movement basis that there are negative um, neuroplastic effects uh, occurring so say, for example, you're working with uh, spinal cord injuries, um, just looking at the spine itself, somebody who um, is maybe not a massive traumatic injury, but, say, just disc injuries, um, is there any evidence showing that there is um, lack of neuroplasticity or decreased uh, neuroplasticity in a population of, uh, of this amount? And, um, and how do you measure that? Has that been even done or, or thought of? Um,
3: I think, I think from a neurophysiological perspective, there are certainly studies I've done to look at the effects of, uh, you know, sciatica, uh, disc injury, uh, but you know, looking at uh, using nerve conduction studies, looking at how how the information from the nerve to the muscle, how quickly is the information being, you know, conducted, and and what's the size of the response we can get from the muscle by stimulating the relevant nerves. So I think there there are things that suggest uh, in the presence of that type of injury, there is definitely uh, uh, changes in the way they communicate with the muscles. Um, The other thing, I guess, um, from sort of other type of study looking at uh, disuse and looking at a uh, study where they actually immobilise someone's arm for two weeks, um, and, and they were able to show that because of those immobilization and disuse, uh, there are also changes in the way the brain controls the muscles. So I think I think, um, that there are um, evidence to suggest that there are changes occur uh, when you use your muscles and when you don't use your muscles, uh, but I don't think they definitively said you know, this is bad, this is good. I think it's based on your interpretation. Um, the, I guess um, um, other things that I've sort of come across and work with is, is you know, in people with sort of more pathological and more uh, severe problems, such as spinal cord injuries, that, uh, you know, a lot of them do develop pain. You know, They do develop pain uh, below the level of the injury. Uh, and certainly, you've heard, you know, stories about people with uh, amputee, with amputated arms or legs, and still complain of uh, pain in the arm or leg that's not there. So, um, I think, I think certainly, these are uh, evidence to suge- suggest that uh, plasticity can occur in the presence of injury, disease, and also, you know, disuse. I think, uh,
4: just to add, if I'm okay, uh, so I, I think one of the other things is neuroplasticity with spinal cord injuries. If we talk about the brain, I think we had a quote of how many billion cells there are in the brain, and of course they're very complex, there are networks, there are connections. Spinal cord, I don't want to downplay the spinal cord, but effectively what we're talking about is circuits that are just wires coming down, take it at the simplest level there. And you kind of think, well, actually, there probably isn't, there's a very big difference between spinal cord injury and brain injury because you don't have the same populations of cells. And the kind of disturbing and depressing fact is it should be easier, therefore, to, cure spinal cord injury, and I don't really think we're making any major inroads uh, to doing that, despite the fact that the model is actually a whole lot simpler, because all you're trying to do is you know, reconnect the, the dots, as it were. So I think it's a, it is a, you know, a quite depressing and sobering thought that actually it may be harder to get plasticity out of something that's simpler like the spinal cord than it is where you might have some reserve with you know, other cells that might come compensate.
0: Now, there's a question on this side, and then just I've just noticed I've got a little map of where I've asked questions. Good, I was looking for one right down the front because this front section hasn't had a chance. So we'll go here and then down here.
5: Hi, thank you. Um, my name's Michelle Attard. I'm a speech pathologist. Um, I really liked the discussion around enriching environments and um, particularly what Michael V was talking about with um, different sort of levels of improvement in one of the studies that you mentioned. Um, I wonder, based on some of the basic research I've done with a small number of participants um, with aphasia, the idea that perhaps people with more severe deficits had more gain to make, they had more sort of room to move in their improvements, particularly around the constraint induced therapy when compared with using multiple types of um, communication methods um, and I think that sort of speaks to what you were talking about earlier, where I wonder if there's a bit of a threshold for um, you know over you know with the brain training sort of over time, how many weeks until it sort of just stops working whether I guess there's two points there, the idea that do people with more room to move potentially make more gains, um, you know, and the other the other idea around threshold?
1: Uh, again, great questions. I'll, I'll let Leanne talk about the, specifically for, in terms of speech pathology. My, my area is cognition in, in older brains. Uh, generally, people... Uh, that haven't been diagnosed with dementia but they may be on the road uh, or at risk for dementia. Uh, what the brain training literature is showing very clearly there is that there's a kind of stereotypical pattern of improvement. So people improve very quickly early on and then that those gains start to plateau off. So you get this kind of law of diminishing returns. So you can keep on training, but your improving is, is marginal. And so then in a in the study that we did, then we looked at, well, okay, we stop at this peak cognitive gain, we stop training, then what happens when you, after you stop training? Well, it's almost the inverse, that you quickly see a loss of those gains, but not all of the gains. So even 12 months later, there is residual cognitive gains. So in other words, you're better off than if you hadn't just done the control training. <clears throat> and so now we start to understand, I guess, the the dose response nature of cognitive improvement in response to this type of training. So we're starting to disambiguate what was just our oh, brain training's good or bad. We're starting to actually move to a more nuanced understanding where we're starting to think about it like a drug. And so you need to understand the, the dynamics of the therapeutic changes. Can I just
4: leave there and just ask, just keeping with that question. Thank you for putting the microphone back on. Um, I can't be trusted. So I, part of the question is, I guess, in some ways, is it worth training the demented patient or are you better off targeting the ones who are mildly bad? Where's the biggest gain going to be? Yes, OK.
1: <laughs> hold your horses. So in, in the latest analysis, um, we've shown that... It seems like at least this treatment, which is brain training, so cognitive exercise over and over again, um, could be on the computer or not on the computer, is not generally effective once you're already diagnosed with dementia. So that there is, it's effective in healthy older people when done properly. It's effective in a, in a kind of in the in-between syndrome, which sometimes called mild cognitive impairment where there is some impairment but not full-blown diagnosis. But then once you get into the diagnostic area, there may be too much, I guess, uh, damage or insult or or stress to the brain so that it can respond uh, in this plastic way. On the other hand, in this subgroup or this group with dementia, there was these little signs... Uh, of clinical effectiveness from those studies that use the immersive technology. So there hasn't been many of those. But things like Wii or virtual reality or things like that. So maybe um, in that, for people with dementia, you need a much more kind of all-encompassing type of experience for them to engage properly. Um, So that's a possibility, and and that maybe feeds into later, into those areas where there's new uh, potential for the future.
0: Now we'll come to the questions right in the middle here. And, panel, I'm going to ask you to keep your answers concise from here on. We're in that last little 20 minutes or so. Uh, Yes, over to you, Uh, sir.
9: Hi, um, I'm Jensen. Um, I'm a business graduate and a social uh, entrepreneur and a fitness instructor.
0: Um, so my question is... Take up just a little
4: bit
9: my more. My question is... Um, Shout. OK. Uh, <laughs> my question is, OK, Alzheimer's, is it related to hormonal changes? Because as you're going up in age, your hormones are going down. And um, <laughs> if you're using neuroplasticity, which is, uh, I'm thinking, it's like a switching mechanism, because your brain's switching to counter, you know, Effects in the brain. Is there is there any like remedies or maybe um, thought on how the processes processes work with aging and also with how the memory works to 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 counter that? Yeah, I'm quite sure
1: if I got your question. Um, Maybe if I rephrase it in a way I can answer quickly, which is what can we do to try and prevent dementia or Alzheimer's as best possible. So at the moment there's only ever been one large multi-centre clinical trial which has shown prevention of dementia and that was for better hypertension control. So that kind of completely opened the door to a new understanding of the brain and how important vascular health is to brain health. On the other hand, there's more and more um, studies suggesting that we may be able to delay onset or lower risk based on lifestyle modification. So that is more learning and mental activity, more social engagement with the community and more physical exercise, which then feeds into cardiovascular health and brain health. So, that, that I mean, it's kind of motherhood statements, like we all know we should be doing these good things, but I think that neuroscience evidence is becoming stronger and stronger that these risk factors can modify our risk for dementia and Alzheimer's dementia. So I think there's a good message there, which which is that we do have some control over our risk for dementia based on relatively simple uh, behavioural changes. But behavioural change is not simple. You know what I mean?
0: And that really moves us into the role of neuroplasticity for healthy brains. We've already touched on brain training and some of, some of these issues have come up. Just going to check whether anyone has a specific question in this area. There's one here and there's a lady right up the back and then there's, one, there's two here. But I'm going to... If you could make your questions pretty tight and to the point, we can get through those four questions. Uh, and uh, wh- whichever panellist has the... Um, quickest response, it's yours. <laughs> this is when we become a game show.
7: I'm just wondering, I might be well off the mark here, but I remember in Psychology 101 we talked about lateralisation. So when the corpus callosum, I think it went from 200,000 bundles down to 20. So I guess that's a structural thing. But would that be considered a form of neuroplasticity? And it applies especially to... Um, language development. So if you learn a language before lateralisation, you'll pick it up like that. After lateralisation, it's
4: very hard. That's why I should teach kids second languages when they're, I think, 10 or below. Uh, I think the evidence is that when uh, the, the juvenile brain is evolving, we have more of those synapses than we end up with later in life. So in actual fact, not only do structures like corpus callosum change, effectively this what we call synaptic pruning, which I think is this sort of reinforcement policy. So I guess the younger brain, and it probably doesn't stop pruning until mid-twenties uh, is the sort of feeling. So this is perhaps why, you know, juvenile brains are more likely to get into trouble, you know, violent crime, et cetera. So I think the answer is there, that is probably a form of the neuroplasticity more towards the synaptic, uh, synaptogenesis or pruning rather than neurogenesis.
1: In terms of myths, so going backwards instead of forwards, I'm sorry. Um, I can do that. The, if, if one of us were to go to a new country and be completely immersed in that different ling- linguistic culture, we would probably learn that new language in, in one year yeah. or two years. No, no little kid can do that if they're learning a new language in this English-speaking environment. So there's a lot of mythology about how fast kids can learn a new language and that they're kind of supercharged to learn a new language. It's not that it's bad for them, quite the opposite. If you learn a new language as a child, you do have better academic and life outcomes later on in life. But there's, no one can beat an adult going into a new linguistic universe and picking up that language incredibly quickly.
0: And I think if there are any Rotary Exchange students here who did a year somewhere at the age of 16 or 17, you'll know by the end of the year, you've been dumped in a country, you learn to speak the language pretty fast. Now, lady in purple up the back. My name's Sherry, I'm general public. I'm wondering if in any of the panelists' areas of expertise, so-called mindfulness-based interventions are showing up and if so, how they would evaluate I'm not sure anyone really fits into that area. So we might actually need to park that one and find you a different expert from some other part of the university. And I tell you what, afterwards, if, the, if you want to come and talk to the communications team down here, they might be able to point you in a direction of someone you could shoot an email to. Now, there's uh, two ladies here, the lady with the purple scarf and then the lady behind her. Uh, and And after these two questions, we'll quickly just move into... Uh, the future of neuroplasticity. Thank you. My name is Leslie
6: Trelevan and my question is about how um, neuroplasticity can um, be m- deployed to keep and to improve short-term memory, because that seems to be one of the major areas that is lost in Alzheimer's. So, one of the, <coughs> excuse me, one of
1: the encouraging messages from the brain training or cognitive training area is that it seems to be particularly effective for memory and short-term episodic memory in particular. A lot of the exercises that you'll see in the software packages are essentially episodic memory type exercises and when we measure the outcomes they do seem to improve in response to that training. Um, So really when we're starting to move into the next topic which is how do you implement that you know, at a population level. Um, So I'm involved in a very big project called Maintain Your Brain Trial, where we're at the moment um, developing new e-health online platforms so that we can deliver these type of interventions en masse but still have the sufficient ability to supervise and intervene and suggest better ways that people can do the exercises because one of the key factors which determines whether brain training is successful is your quali- the quality of the supervision. You know, If I just give you a software package and you just go, go home, do this, it just won't work. So the, the business model for Lumosity and all of those other companies is unfortunately, it's not effective. So we need to the next generation brain training, which um, we can't all come into our expert centre and get you know our expert supervisors in person but hopefully we can come up with some kind of intermediate solution where if you're struggling you know you can get a trainer pop up on your screen who can share your screen and guide you through get over this little hump and then you can get back on track so i think that's what we're trying to move to um, in these for these very large population interventions can I, can I start with...
2: question about that um with the Brain training um, exercises in traumatic brain injury. We've found that you know you can improve on obviously the brain training tasks, but but the generalisation doesn't happen to their everyday life activities. And i was just wondering with the short-term memory tasks you're doing, are you, are you seeing generalisation to a
1: person's everyday life kind of uh, tasks? So, so it's a very important question because if you learn, trained to juggle. You'll get better at juggling, but generally, we want to improve people's ability to move objects with their hands, make a cup of tea. Um, So does brain training generalise to -to day-to-day life? It really depends what brain disorder you're talking about. So in the ageing space, um, there are a couple of studies that have shown generalisation to daily function. I'm not aware if if that's been shown in traumatic brain injury where there's certainly evidence that it can prove the cognitive function and not only the cognitive function that was trained but some cognitive generalisation. And and there's a kind of diabolical problem there which is that testing or assessing people's daily function is just so hard. And if you're relying on um, a really simple clinical scale, like can you make a cup of tea, can you dress yourself, can you go to the shops. That It's just very um, technically difficult uh, from a statistical point of view to show improvement because you've got to go from one ability to do something or, or not be able to do that to be able to do that. So you need a massive functional change before you can quantify that. So that's a kind of uh, a scientific challenge to to come up with New ways to quantify daily function. It's a high resolution rate. Um, so there's potential there, but it is one yeah. of the big questions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, and the lady here, this will need to be our last question. If you haven't had a chance to ask a question, please feel free to talk to the panel. And then what I'll be asking you guys to do just to wrap us up is the future. Paint your picture of the future, but I'm only going to give you a minute or two to do it. So, last question here. I'm an ageing baby boomer. I want to be able to remain at work and functioning as long as I possibly can. Are there things that we can do now that we can have reasonable certainty will, will work for us? And is it yet possible to target specific skills and functions using
5: neuroplasticity to keep those skills, you know, perhaps skills that we need to keep
0: working, uh, like being able to absorb large amounts of information or keeping our analytical skills sharp. Um, uh, Have we reached that stage yet where where there could be some
6: certainty that we could target particular skills and uh, if
8: so, what
4: are they? So can I jump in? So uh, shock, horror, everyone sit down. There are a couple of studies that have just come out recently to suggest that dementia rates may be falling in certain parts of the world. Am I right, (laughs) Michael? Um, And the key factors as to why this should be seem to be targeting cardiovascular risk factors. Um, Interestingly, a lot of these uh, data were collected in places that seem to have a focus on recruiting people. So Framingham, of course, is the obvious one, Framingham being a town in America where effectively, if you go and look at Framingham, you'll see that Framingham was a town in America where effectively everyone was being mapped over years and years and years, blood pressure, girth, obesity, all of these things. Interestingly, their rates of dementia are going down, but the rate of cholesterol tablets is very, very high, and the rates are very, very high. So in that fact, those things are absolutely guaranteed, it seems, to be very worthwhile doing. The question is how soon you should do that. I um, don't think we have the answer, but the bottom line is that you should be aggressive about those secondary preventive factors. Now, the other things, the brain training, all of those, I, I don't know how we can prove that they're definitely going to stop you ever getting dementia. I don't know.
1: Well, that's what our trial hopefully will, will show or not show. That's Maintain Your Brain Trial. Um, The other option is that there's a great book written called Maintain Your Brain, um, and there's a conflict... (laughs) I have a conflict conflict of interest that I should (laughs) declare, which is that I may be associated with the author. Um, The bottom line there, what, what I call the three keys, is mental, social and physical activity, particularly after retirement. I mean, even better is don't retire because... Very convincing data showing that for each year that you delay retirement, there's a three percent lower risk for dementia. If you're already retired, then you've got to replace that cognitive and physical stimulation with new stimulation. Because going back to the enrichment studies, neuroplasticity, it's what are we engaging with out there in the environment? You know, if it's just our living room. And, and, and TV—it's a very restrictive universe, and the brain can't thrive. So we need to we need to target mental, social, and physical activity.
0: And Leanne and Michael, I'm happy if you've got a quick thing to add to this before you start to paint your vision of what the future no, no. might look like. Anything you want to add? You've talked about exercise, Michael. Um,
8: yeah,
1: I think.
3: I think uh, regular exercise is really important. Uh, maintaining physical functioning and cardiovascular health, link muscle mass, uh, and also eat well, you know, have a balanced diet. You probably all know this before. Uh, but there's a really good study came out recently uh, that looked at a million people uh, and they, they tracked their dietary intake for several years and follow up, you know, many years later to see who developed motor neuron disease. And they found that those people who are at lower risk are the ones that have a f- higher intake of fatty acids, omega-3, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, so I think, I think that reinforces the idea that health, you know, dietary uh, is also important and we, we shouldn't forget about diet uh, and having a balanced diet and, you know, exercise regularly, yeah.
0: Now, panel, I'm going to give you 60 seconds on the clock to answer the question, what's the future in your area for this most exciting area of neuroplasticity who Simon would you like to start yeah,
4: big shorter than 60 seconds I, I think we're um probably not going to see a huge role for neuroplasticity in terms of preventing the dementias. Uh, But it's a bit like exercise. That doesn't mean it's bad for you uh, to do all of these things that we're talking about. You know, the fact of the matter is if you go get Monty Python's Meaning of Life out of the DVD store and watch the final scene with Michael Palin in a dress saying, you know, well be nice to people read a book, get out, exercise don't drink, don't smoke. It's pretty much there for us I think at the moment.
0: Love it. (laughs) <laughs> Michael Lee, what about um, from your perspective?
3: I, I think I think um, there's there's enough evidence now to say neuroplasticity is happening. You know, the brain can change, um, and I think with the advance in technology, with different imaging techniques, you know, better resolution, different type of way, we can see how the brain works, and that's exciting for me because hopefully we can start to see more information about. Uh, you know, why certain things help certain conditions and able to have a better uh, technique to demonstrate the mechanisms, you know, which part of the brain is working and how it works.
0: Beautiful. And that was only 30 seconds. Over to you, Leanne.
2: Okay. So uh, the future of neuroplasticity in my field is very bright, I think. And uh, we we have reasonably good knowledge about what these principles of neuroplasticity are, that we should be using lots of repetition and using activities that are salient and relevant to people and, um, you know, they use it or lose it and, um, you know, if you don't use it, you you won't improve it. So we we know all these things, but I think the real future is going to be in making these principles, building them into treatments, so that people can um, practise themselves and I think... Essential to this is going to be e-health and online programs, like Michael suggested. So that's that's the space that I'm really looking at getting into in the next 10 years. Is making treatments accessible to people wherever they live, and being able to give them the tools so that they can, if you want to practice eight hours a week, if you've had a stroke and you have aphasia, that you've got the materials that you can do that. Um, because we can't we can't rely on clinicians to do that long term. So I think we really it's, it's we're heading into a new world of patient-directed care, and I think it's up to us as clinical researchers to design treatments so that people can treat themselves, really.
1: Um, So I completely um, basically support that statement about e-health and how that will be a massive frontier in delivering the neuroplasticity-based treatments that we know work in clinics or in centres out there to the population. Um, And I'm not as maybe nihilistic assignment, I think it could have a positive role in preventing the dementias, at least relatively, maybe not absolutely. Um, The other area, which we haven't touched at all tonight, and so I'll leave it as maybe a take-home message, is we've all all throughout our discussion been talking about endogenous neurogenesis, so improving, boosting, stimulating the neurons, connections that we have in our brain. I'm very um, passionate and hopeful about stem cell technology that introduce new brain cells into very damaged and disease devastated parts of the brain to rebuild those neural populations and re-energise the circuit. So I think that's going to be a very brave and fascinating frontier for the future.
0: Thank you all. Please thank our panellists. If you've enjoyed tonight, and you may also be interested to know about the rest of the series on September the 7th, Five Ways Your Heart Can Kill You That You Didn't Know. Uh, And on the 12th of October, Childhood Infectious Diseases, Protecting Kids from the Cradle to the Mosh Pit. Thank you, and if you'd like to receive information about these, head to the Sydney Ideas webpage. Thank you for joining us, and thank you
8: to our panellists.